A person who thinks all the time has nothing to think about except thoughts. So he loses touch with reality and lives in a world of illusions. This pure thought and impure thought business. Who are you to decide what is pure and impure? This is the way life is made. There's nothing pure, there's nothing impure. Life is just the way it is. It's for you. A culture that is obsessed with and prioritizes a separation from and control of natural human desire. Hello, and welcome to Impure Rethought a podcast where we discuss the ways purity, patriarchy, and profit have shaped Western culture. I am one of your hosts, Victoria, sometimes known as Vika, by my friends, enemies, and lovers. And I'm your other co-host, Meg. I was voted most Christ-like by my senior high school class, my crowning achievement. So... Without further ado, welcome to our first topic. This is going to be all about toxic positivity. And before I dive into my research, I would love to hear, Victoria, kind of your thoughts on toxic positivity. How would you define it? So I guess like toxic positivity to me would be like somebody comes to you for help with a legitimate problem. For example, let's say... A mentally ill teenager comes to you and says, I really don't want to be alive and I don't know what to do and every day feels like a nightmare and I can't get out of bed. Not that I'm speaking from personal experience or anything. Couldn't be. No. Um, and somebody says, well, look at all the good things in your life. You have things to live for and also pray harder. And then all of your problems will go away because nothing in your material situation will change, but you'll just, like, mindset your way out of a bad material situation. Yeah. I said that in a complicated way, but I basically think, to boil it down, it's, like, the power of, like, thinking yourself out of a problem is what Mm. I would call toxic positivity. Yeah. I am somebody that suffers a lot. (laughs) <laughs> not not in a way of like oh like my life is terrible but just in a I I definitely have a tendency to fixate on bad things so I remember because I guess some important context if you didn't listen to our welcome episode is that we went to a very evangelical high school but neither of us were raised religious really I remember like growing up we had a lot of you know pull yourself up by your bootstraps talk I think something that's pretty relatable for a lot of kids of our generation is like if you just work really hard and like keep a positive mindset you will win capitalism. I remember specifically having a lot of trouble with toxic positivity in high school because I was like legitimately losing my mind. Um, yeah, I was also not, relatable. <laughs> was not having a fun time <laughs> and I was having like real problems and not that not that like high school problems aren't real but I wasn't like you know I wasn't breaking up with a boyfriend or anything I was I needed help 
I needed medical care. And I remember a lot of the advice that I got was pray and focus on the positive things. And that's advice that I still get today. Mm-hmm. And I think it's especially prevalent in the industry that I work in mm. um, to kind of be like, aren't we so lucky to get to do this? And isn't this cool? And isn't it great? And you can never complain about anything. And to be honest, it's something that I struggle with because I think I do tend a little more pessimistic. And so I'm never really sure like what's an actual problem and what's something that I'm not being grateful enough about. Mm. So there's that. What about you? Well, I, yeah, I have a lot of, I think, somewhat similar experience with it. Neither of us was raised particularly religious. And so we were just kind of thrust into this deeply religious world because of the school that we went to. And the culture there was very, like, thoughts and prayers, you know? And I would say most of the other people that we went to school with were raised religious. Yeah, it definitely felt like we were in the minority. Both of our parents were divorced as well, which was, like, a big thing. Also a weird thing about us <laughs> to our classmates, I yeah. think. So, okay, so I'll just kind of dive into my research. All right, and... I'm ready. I'm ready okay. to learn. So I was very surprised to learn that the first recorded example of a toxically positive mindset mm-hmm. was from an Enlightenment-era philosopher and mathematician, Gottfried Wilhelm Leibniz. Oh, I've heard of this guy. Yeah. He's very famous. (laughs) Um, (laughs) He wrote an essay in 1676, basically in an effort to answer the problem of evil. (laughs) No big deal. (laughs) Just just one... Just a casual Wednesday. Just a fun little problem. Amusing. Yeah. (laughs) Um, and also prove God's existence. So his argument was that our world is the best of all possible worlds. This is his, like, famous quote, the best of all possible worlds, which effectively minimizes all personal and societal suffering in the world Mm. by claiming that things could only have been worse and not better. In other words, if there were other ways our world could have been, this was still the best choice because it's the one that God picked, and God as he proves in his essay, Mm -hmm. according to his logic, (laughs) um, God is both perfect and all-powerful. This whole roundabout logic proves that there is either no other possible world, or there were, but this was still the best one. Which feels, to me, easy for a wealthy German philosopher to say. I was just going to say, what are the chances (laughs) that this is a white guy? Yeah, oh, 100%. (laughs) I mean, would we still be reading his words as, like, a philosopher? True. Like, Mm. would they have persisted? Mm -hmm. Perhaps not. (laughs) A fun fact about this guy, actually, is that Voltaire's 1759 satire, Candide, was in direct response to this essay. That kind of fucks. That's really really cool. (laughs) Isn't that awesome? (laughs) I was very excited to Nice. I knew you would appreciate it, too. (laughs) Sounds like like, the kind of guy Voltaire would bully. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So that's like the far back history of toxic positivity. I'm sure that people were being toxically positive before that, but this is like the first time, I guess, it was... You're a like really mainstream thought or line of thinking. Sumeria in a famine, like <laughs> yeah, they're like my family's dying, and they're like, it's okay, pray about it. 
Um, <laughs> I'm sure someone had that conversation. Oh, I'm 100% sure. They're like, don't worry, queen. <laughs> You'll girl boss your way out of this one. <laughs> yeah. yeah, a quick jump to today for some definitions. So this author and activist and essayist, Barbara Ehrenreich, or Ehrenreich, I really should have looked up how to say her name. I'm so sorry, Barbara. (laughs) But she wrote a great book called Bright-Sided, How the Relentless Promotion of Positive Thinking Has Undermined America. She argues that, quote, being positive in affect, in mood, in outlook seems to be ingrained in our national character, end quote which I've definitely seemed to be true. Our national character being, like, the United States. Yeah. We're kind of known around the world for being, like, very positive, smiling at strangers. And you know you've done so much traveling. Yeah, and I also, (laughs) I lived in Russia for just about three years, and yeah, it was, like, notably different. And Russians suffer very well, I I will say Mm. that. I was very at home there. Americans are always like, what's the bright side? And Russians are like, how can I make this about suffering? This is not a complaint. I love that about them. It's great. <laughs> but yeah, I, I definitely noticed that when I moved back to the United States. So yeah, hashtag confirmed. Yeah. And it's not even like a new thing. The pursuit of happiness is literally in our constitution. So this is like... True. This is like a deeply ingrained value in our mm. <laughs> country. We desperately do want to be happy. We're just bad at it. <laughs> Essentially, well, is what maybe I'm saying. it has to do with like the the complete lack of social security. <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> yeah. So Ehrenreich says the positivity we participate in as Americans is less a condition or a mood than an ideology, which I found really fascinating. She defines that positive thinking ideology. In two ways. One, quote, is the generic content of positive thinking, that is, the positive thought itself, end quote. And the second way she defines it is as the, quote, practice or discipline of trying to think in a positive way, end quote. Um, It's kind of like a little engine that could mentality, (laughs) you know? Um, But, like, if we focus on the positive, I think I can. Yeah then positive outcomes are more likely to happen. Just believe in yourself. Yeah, exactly. And I think that, like, that's been repackaged for our generation and, like, the generation below us as, like, manifesting, which is something Mm -hmm. that we're going to jokingly say all the time. Oh, yeah. I'm sorry, I'm about to derail here, but do you consider yourself a millennial or Gen Z? Yes. Okay, same, kind (laughs) of. Yeah. I mean, like, I don't really, like, believe in generational divides all that much, but I feel like... I feel like I have things in common with both generations. Me too. They yeah. both feel like familiar and foreign to me. Yeah, in I would various say ways. Gen Z feels scarier to me, mm. but they're just like intimidating. Yeah, they're like the scary, like mean younger class. Yeah, <laughs> true. Okay. Anyway, sorry. Like, wow, you guys have everything figured out, and you're younger than me, <laughs> and it's embarrassing for me. I'm sorry to interrupt your research. That's okay. Um, I liked that <laughs> little digression. Um, where was I, though? <laughs> it's okay. We were talking about manifesting. It's been repackaged for a generation, but I think that this kind of thinking ties, like, this ideology ties right into, like, the American dream mm. and some even more sinister 
ideas and ideals that we will get into, but let's go back to history. (laughs) In the mid-17th century, shortly before Leibniz published that essay we were talking about, um, listen, this is gonna sound like it doesn't really... The next couple bullet points are a little bit off the rails, but we'll come back, I promise. So George Fox founded the Society of Friends, a.k.a. Quakerism. George Fox as in your alma mater? Yep, my alma mater, George Fox. He was the founder of Quakerism. Our college was originally a Quaker institution, but is now just like more generally non-denominational, in other words, evangelical, so... But yeah, George Fox uh, founded Quakerism. Uh, Quakers only have like a few simple beliefs, um, but at the core of them is that every person can know and be known directly by God. Hmm. So this was a very radical idea in the 17th century. That's like very... That's something that has carried on into evangelicalism Yeah, it has. yeah. Yeah. Coming from an evangelical background like we do, it, like, really does not feel foreign to us. But, Mm -hmm. like, it was very radical at the time um, to the point that Quakers were literally persecuted, not getting into Twitter wars, literally, like, imprisoned (laughs) and sometimes killed for their beliefs. So, uh, PSA, that's that's persecution, folks. (laughs) Anyway, according to the Friends General Conference, which is like, as I understand it, Quakers sound off in the comments if I'm wrong. (laughs) Anyway, I was saying the Friends General Conference is like the overseeing board or whatever of, Mm -hmm. of Quakerism. And according to them, Quakers officially operate on basically that single belief. Um, and anything beyond that is, like, up to the individual Quaker. Obviously, like, different smaller conferences or regions, even on a smaller scale, single churches will believe different things, but officially that's what they believe. So Quakers don't have any kind of creed or anything. Around the same time the Society of Friends was founded, the Great Puritan Migration brought nearly 20,000 Puritans to the Massachusetts Bay Colony. Um, In the grand scheme of things, 20,000 Puritans, like, is honestly not that many people. In, like, the grand scheme of colonialism. And the paper that I read on this was like, we place too much emphasis on Puritans and we shouldn't. So... Shout out to that paper, I guess, but, like, (laughs) I think that a lot of the, like, black and white thinking that Puritans had has persisted into, like, especially the evangelical church and, like, the American culture at large, which is what our whole podcast is about. Yeah, I guess, like, 20,000 Puritans isn't a grand number in the scheme of things, but in the 1600s, that was a lot of people. Yeah, it feels like a lot. Also, that paper like, was like, imagine... ignore the Puritans. <laughs> I'm like, I can't. Imagine that you were just chilling, like, on the beach, and all of a sudden, like, 20,000 people show up, and they're like, you're a <laughs> sinner. To be fair, I don't think they all showed up at the exact same time. I mean, true. But, okay. <laughs> I guess a better analogy would be, like, a couple hundred people showed up, and then they were like, yeah, yeah all of my cousins are coming as well. Mm-hmm. They're and, on their way right now. Yeah. And you all are and, sinners. Yeah. And 
and you have to change your entire way of life. Yeah, no, it's horrifying. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so basically Puritans came, and also Quakers did too. <laughs> That's what I'm getting on. Okay, gotcha. Um, <laughs> so it's obviously much more complex than this, but for the sake of argument, let's say that the American Evangelical Church, as we know it today, is like a simple blend of these two extremes. Intense individuality in the form of a personal relationship with God and a deep desire for God's will to be done on earth, which of course means following the Bible to the letter. Mm -hmm. Um, Only when it's convenient. Only when it's convenient. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Only the letters that we like. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Basically, at the core of the American evangelical tradition is the desire to evangelize or share the good news of the gospel. Nothing so inherently wrong with that desire, in my opinion, but when you combine it with Quakerism's individuality and Puritanism's lawfulness, in other words, legalism, which is like a bad word in the church, Mm -hmm. um, it's a recipe for toxic positivity of the most toxic kind, you know? I think the phrase for the greater good is a classic example of toxic positivity, and yeah. a result of those two combined beliefs. Mm-hmm. It's almost always employed as a response to dissent, and it effectively shuts down any conflicting viewpoints, because how can you argue with the greater good? This is, like, how evangelicalism has, like, yeah, gained power and persisted. Yeah. Throughout our history, Americans have used this kind of toxic positivity to justify every kind of evil, from... The colonization of indigenous peoples in this country to slavery slavery to in more modern times conversion therapy oh yeah yeah i think that like for the greater good at least for me that phrase conjures nazis that's like what the phrase is known for but mm-hmm. it's fully like ingrained in our national character yeah yeah which is very scary i think it just feels very other to us yeah but it really is not it's like what we were founded on Mm -hmm. anyway (laughs) on a more personal note while i was deeply involved in the evangelical church i heard examples of toxic positivity like every single day that doesn't surprise me at all yeah (laughs) yeah but the worst in my opinion was when my brothers died when i was in high school um background my two oldest brothers died when i was in high school yeah there you go I can't even count the number of times I heard stuff like this right after it happened and even, like, years after. Um, People were telling me stuff like, God must have a plan for this or God's going to use you through this. Yeah, God has a plan is a big one. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I so desperately wanted to believe them. That was fully the culture that I was immersed in. Like, I just really, really wanted that to be true. So much so that I started to, like, feel guilty for experiencing my own grief and, like, missing my own brothers. Yeah. Um, I literally said to someone, I know it's selfish of me to miss them because God brought them home, you know? Yeah. My heart breaks for, like, little 16-year-old me thinking stuff like that, but, uh... I remember having a similar that being part of my deconstruction process Mm -hmm. is like I had been exposed to some like legitimate trauma very early in Mm -hmm. life 
and just thinking like there was no point to that like there was no. no point for me to suffer that way yeah like it was just bad yeah and I remember like in high school having to really like try and figure out a way to contextualize that stuff and yeah. and be like how is this part of my journey with God? And the mm-hmm. answer was just, it wasn't. Like, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. It shouldn't have happened. Yeah. Ultimately, for me, like, hearing that stuff was, like, the beginning of the end of my faith. Mm, that makes sense. Like, I just couldn't... I tried so, so hard to understand it and, like, contextualize it, like you were saying. Um, yeah. But there's just no way to. Like, this is just senseless tragedy, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and it sucks and is really sad. Yeah. And no one was telling me that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So eventually, like, I just couldn't, couldn't make sense of it. Yeah. And gave up trying. But anyway, <laughs> I, like, really don't think that anyone's intention was to make me no. feel guilty about, like, grieving, you yeah. know. I don't think anyone wanted me to shut off my, like feelings of sadness or like missing them when I said I shouldn't even miss them you know to whoever it was they were like no you definitely should they reassured me that it was normal Mm -hmm. you know uh so I don't think that it stunts the grieving process to be like it definitely does how can I because like the five stages of grief none of those are positive emotions so if you're just focused on trying to feel positive after experiencing one of the biggest traumas of your life then it's like obviously that's not positive (laughs) no it's not yeah there's just like no way to spin it yeah but yeah people genuinely I believe that they meant this as a comfort but it's not an individual issue as much as a larger cultural systemic one yeah within the church these are the things that people say to each other pastors say to congregations mm-hmm. even our presidents say to oh, our nation yeah you know I wrote and we heard like a lot of testimonies growing up mm-hmm. because we we attended the same youth groups and <laughs> yeah and things about like people who had like really struggled but in but they were like in the end it was okay because it was all part of God's plan for me so we're mm-hmm. just kind of not being able to acknowledge or accept the struggle and be like I don't feel grateful for suffering. Yeah. And there was kind of always an an attitude that like suffering made you stronger. Yeah. And it and it made you a better Christian. I remember feeling bad that like my suffering didn't make me a better Christian and I was like I actually don't feel very supported. Yeah. I think that on the flip side of that is those people that like grew up very sheltered, very religious, didn't really have I mean, not that religious trauma is not trauma, (laughs) but, like, people like my best friend at the time were, like, feeling bad that they didn't have more suffering in their lives that God could have used them through, which is, like, fully the most, like, dismissive of suffering thing I could imagine. You know, it's like, I wish I had suffered more so that I could could be a strong Christian like you. More interesting. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Basically, it's a huge institutional issue yeah the good news of the gospel is literally that god made a path for us to have no more suffering yeah so like what does it matter if we're suffering on earth because eventually we'll get to heaven and we won't have any suffering there's just so much stigma in the church around recognizing suffering of any kind is actually 
painful instead of useful. Mm-hmm. When there's good news to focus on, why focus on your pain? Yeah. If God has a plan, who are you to question it just because it's difficult for you? There is a lot of support for a lot of kinds of people suffering in the church, but I it's so, so limited to like a small group of people and a small subset of suffering, I guess, yeah. if that makes sense. Yeah. It's all the question of who gets to suffer. Exactly. I was yeah. not allowed to suffer. No, you and I were not allowed to suffer. Not at all. Evangelicalism, sympathy only runs so deep. It's a sense of like, for us anyway, I'll sit with you while you go through this, but I hope you like come to your senses soon and remember the good news, Mm, you know? Yeah. Because in the end, people go to church to find answers of all kinds. It's the church culture's hubris that tells them they'll find all of their answers there. Yeah. I guess the idea of like, you'll be free of suffering after you die, which is true because you will be dead. Mm-hmm. Like, no matter what happens. Yeah. You, true. You will no longer suffer on earth. Yeah. But the idea that like your suffering on earth is less important or doesn't matter just because you'll die one day. Like, yeah. that's dangerously a little suicidal. Yeah, <laughs> it is. It's a good thing that the Bible made suicide a sin because... <laughs> yeah. Uh, it really is. But anyway, the church claims to have all the answers, and then when, like, your church friend or your church leader or even the Bible doesn't really have the answer, the answer is just God has a plan. Yeah. You know? It's like the most catch-all advice ever. It is. It's so broadly applicable. It's never like, okay... I can't pay my bills and I'm going to get evicted. Where do I go? It's Mm -hmm. like, don't worry. God has a plan. I was like, well, I would love to know what the plan is. Yeah. Could he share it with me? Yeah, that'd be great. (laughs) It would be really helpful. Yeah. Ultimately, I think modern toxic positivity stems from the colonial inability to, like, admit wrongdoing. Mm. If you want to project an image of yourself that says, like, you know what you're doing and you have everything figured out. You can't admit when something's wrong because that breaks the image. Mm -hmm. And if you can't admit something is or has been wrong in your own life, how are you supposed to respond to anyone else's struggles with any kind of real empathy? Yeah. Like, truly, at the root of toxic positivity is, like, a lack of empathy. Yeah, true. Wow. You, like, blew my mind. Really? Yeah, I learned a lot. I didn't know that. I'm so glad. I was, like, really excited when you told me that you, like, had to read some philosophy research. And I was like, ooh, that's so fun. Yeah, I worked really hard on trying to read Mm -hmm. Leibniz. (laughs) And his so round... I could never be a philosopher. Like, oh my god. So roundabout. Such confusing logic. He's like, if this is true and this is true, then this is true. But if this isn't true, then this isn't true. I'm like, uh huh. <laughs> oh, is this the one that you texted me? <laughs> yes. Yeah. yeah, that was a quote from him. Yeah. Yeah, what a mess. And all that to just tell you about the best of all possible worlds. But yeah. anyway, it was worth it. Yeah. <laughs> I hope. That's really interesting. I didn't know that it went back that far. Like, right? I kind of always think of it as like a 20th century. Yeah, it feels very 20th century. And I didn't really go into this, but there's, like, you know, the whole, like, mysticism movement Mm -hmm. more along the lines of, like, manifesting stuff like that. There's a whole, like, 
I don't know, industry around Mm -hmm. toxic positivity that I didn't even touch. (gasps) It is very interesting. I just felt like it didn't really fit with the church kind of stuff. Wow. Yeah. I learned so much. Yay. I hope our listeners did too. (laughs) Yeah. I feel like these first two episodes, we both have topics that are kind of like, hmm, how does that tie in? But then you're like, it actually really does. Yeah. So that's fun. Yeah, so thank you so much, everyone, for listening. You can find us online at Impure Rethought on Twitter or Instagram. Our website is impurerethought.com. We'd love to hear from you. Feel free to leave us a review if you liked what we had to say. It would mean a lot to us. So without further ado, may your thoughts stay dirty.